So if you've been with us uh, over the past few weeks, we've been kind of marching through a series on marriage called Marriages That Make a Difference. Uh, I believe, and we've talked about this every week, that marriage is meant to be one of the most transformative things in a culture. We've seen what happens in the decline of marriage with broken families and all of this and, and how that hurts culture, how it impacts it negatively. And I think that God has designed marriage when done well, when done in a God-honoring fashion to have the exact opposite impact, to raise up a culture, to transform it, and to show it through our marriages who God is through us. So I believe that we're called to have marriages that make a difference. And we've been working through, I said, there's five foundational arenas that we really need to grow in, grow in depth and understanding if we're going to have these kinds of marriages. Not only the kind of marriages that transform our lives, my spouse and I, and our family, I pray for generations, but our neighborhoods, our communities. The, the first thing that we looked at our first week was we need to grow in the arena of expectations, our expectations determine our actions and our reactions in any given relationship or in any given situation. We have to learn to evaluate and communicate our expectations. Our, our ability or lack of ability to do this sets the trajectory for our relationship. We have to learn to evaluate and communicate our expectations if we're really going to move forward and grow into these healthy, difference-making relationships. Then we looked at roles. Uh, we spent two weeks looking at the, the biblical role of a husband and of a wife and, and how authority and submission play into this. And our understanding of our roles in marriage define our expectations, and that sets the trajectory for everything. Last week, we were looking at how we handle conflict. If you remember, the, the whole kind of thesis was the goal is not no conflict. The goal is healthy conflict. Conflict is one of those things that God knew we would have because we're smashing two sinful lives together and he's given us in his word ways to navigate it, not avoid it, but to actually have conflict be something that draws us together. Where, where we can grow in understanding of each other and we can learn and become closer through conflict, not by avoiding it. And so we, we've been marching through here. We've got two weeks left. This week we're going to look at finances and in two weeks, the Gaylers will be here next week, and so the following week, we'll look at intimacy. Uh, real quick, if you have a family and you're going, we're going to talk about what on a Sunday morning? Uh, we will have age-appropriate uh, breakout sessions for everyone 18 and under. The high schoolers are going to go with Shirley, the older elementary are going to go with Kim, and then we'll have Children's Church so that we can actually talk about intimacy uh, without having to look and go, what am I going to have to explain later? kind of idea. Uh, so that'll be two weeks from now, and we, we've, we've taken care of that piece of it, so don't let that scare you off. But today, as we look at finances, if we're going to have the kind of marriages that make a difference, we need to grow in shared stewardship of our finances. I chose this wording very, uh, very particularly. We need to grow in shared stewardship of our finances. Let me break down a couple of these terms. When I talk about shared... What I mean by that is this, the most important thing when it comes to our finances, and, and this can be hard to understand sometimes, but is actually to be together in them. Oftentimes we look at it and we go, the most important thing is to do it the right way. 
there are so many different right ways to approach your finances and to budget and to all of this. And everyone said, this is the only one. And we could fight about it till the cows come home. The question is, how is God leading us? Are we on the same page? If not, I don't care what method you choose. It's kind of doomed from the start. How do we come together and share the stewardship? This, this is something that, listen, takes time and practice and a lot of that conflict we talked about before will come up here, but this is something we have to be in lockstep over. The, the statistics are actually really, really sad. You guys know the divorce rates in our country and how they continue to grow. When people are polled or when they fill out their paperwork and what is the reason that you're separating, that you're divorcing, always in the top two is finances. If it's not number one, it's number two, every single time. We just couldn't agree on finances. We didn't see it the same way. He wanted to do this, I wanted to do that. Like, we have to learn and grow and work together in our finances. Shared stewardship, common view, common goals. Some people think that like, is this one of those biblical roles thing? This is like, since we talked about the husband and a role of authority, so like obviously it's his job to do it, right? And this is not a male-female role thing. You won't find anything in scripture that says he does this or she does that. It's a they come together and do this together. When, when you look at Proverbs 31, a really famous place to go, if you're looking for, listen, if you have sons out there, what kind of woman should you be looking for? That's why Solomon wrote it. And it's this entire chapter about this kind of dream woman that Solomon's sons should be looking for. She was a businesswoman. She understood finance. She understood how to handle the house money and run a business. I mean, so there was no, listen, little lady, just ask him for money and he'll take care of the check. Like even all the way back then he was going, man, look for the kind of woman who understands how to do this stuff. There was no male, female, hands-off kind of idea. When we talk about shared, I mean shared responsibility. Far too often what this looks like is one person being forced into the role of doing the budget because the other person won't do it. For the first 10 years of Kim and I's marriage, this was our relationship, and you can guess who was the responsible one, right? She was more the saver, I'm more the spender, and so it was really easy to go, hey, I'm going to spend us out of house and home, so you take care of it. And I put it on her, and she suffered really quietly for about 10 years, every month sitting down and doing it. She is not wired this way, but she kind of like drew the short straw, and I threw it on her, and really what it was was me just going, I don't want to deal with it. You're more gifted that way. And I, I would praise her in all these ways, but really it was just going, I'm so glad I don't have to do it. And it also led to me coming to her and going, hey, can I have some money, please? I really want to buy a new pair of shoes. I love shoes. I really want to go do this thing over here. And it became a weird kind of parent-child relationship where I had to go and ask for an allowance. And it put her in the position of having to continually tell me no. If you're in the position of having to constantly tell your spouse no to something, it's not going to be long before you just kind of go, fine, whatever. I don't want to just go do it, which led to credit card debt, which led to, like, it was a mess. And it was because I refused to share in the responsibility of our finances. So after about 10 years, we had some good, healthy conflict. And I, I came to realize, like, oh, she really doesn't want to do this by herself. And so we spent the next probably five, six years 
figuring out what does this look like to share. And we tried a whole bunch of stuff that didn't quite work, but we were, we were set on the idea that we have to learn to do this together. And it has been one of the most freeing things in our relationship that we're on the same page when it comes to our finances. We have the same goals. We know the steps that it's gonna take to get there and we're moving through it together. It has been one of the greatest blessings of our relationship together. Shared in responsibility. There's, there's an openness and an honesty that comes when we share in this responsibility. Any, any other way, there tends to be more secrecy. Because again, one of you tends to be a saver, one of you tends to be a spender, and the spender learns, I hope they don't look at the credit card statement too closely. I can get away with a little bit of stuff and maybe we just won't have to talk about it because I don't want to have to keep going to them with that. And there, there can be this tendency towards secrecy that will destroy the relationship. It will destroy the trust. I'm going to throw this out here and I want to preface it by saying this. This is not a biblical command. What I'm about to say is not something you will read a verse in scripture that says it. This purely comes from my own experience in walking with a lot of couples. If you have separate finances, you're in a very dangerous place. You're protecting yourself from your spouse, which is never the way forward. To have separate checking accounts and separate whatever that way, like they don't see what I'm doing and they don't have to worry about what I'm doing. It's a, it's a dangerous precedent that you're setting. I would seriously recommend not moving in that direction. I truly believe that we are called as husbands and wives to share everything together, including our finances. So shared stewardship. This idea of stewardship, I, Pam came up and prayed uh, for the offering and I leaned over to Natalie and I said, she should preach this morning. Like she was, you were nailing it. This whole idea, here, here's what stewardship means. You don't own it anyway. Nothing is yours. Everything we have belongs to him we're simply stewards. Stewards are people who are given responsibility over somebody else's stuff. There is a king. We, we talk all the time about a kingdom. There is a king, and it's not me. The king owns everything. He's given it to me to be a steward, but I have to start from that place of going, I, this is not mine. My time, my money, my energy, it's not mine. It's a stewardship that I've been given and so the real question has to become, how does the king want me to use his finances? How does the king want me to use his time, the very breath that he gave me, I'm simply a steward of? At any point in time, he could take it back, and he has every right to do it. But the king has given me this, how do I be a good steward of it? Or in marriage, how do we be a good steward of it? Does this make sense, church? Stewardship is really about surrender to the king. It's not mine, it's yours. I really want to do this. Does that line up with what you want? Because here's the thing, if not, you win. But before I ever hear a direction from you, that has to be the posture of our heart. It's yours. So if you say no, I'm setting it down. If you say yes, I'm running forward, but it's yours. It's about surrender to the king. There's this... It's kind of a weird phenomenon if you think about it. In the New Testament, there is more written about money than there is heaven and hell combined. Wow. That sounds a little weird, right? Because, I mean, it's the Bible. And, and this whole Christianity thing's about heaven and hell one day, right? Oh, trick question. 
There is more written in the New Testament about money than heaven and hell combined. Let me ask this question. Why? Why would so much ink be spilled over something that one day we know isn't going to last? Money doesn't go into eternity. We, don't have, we won't have to worry about it one day. We got, let's say, 80 years here on this earth, and money's a part of all, every one of those days, and then we have millions of years without it. Why would he spend so much time talking about money? Because he knows we're going to stress over it, okay? Because it's a reality we have to deal with no matter what our situation is, okay? Okay, it's something that can easily control us, okay? Yeah, our, our society places a certain value on those that have more and kind of takes value from those that have less, and we can very easily fall into that, okay? What else? Yes, she did steal that from someone else. And it wasn't me. I'm, I'm going to steal it later. So yeah, we'll come back to that. But absolutely. I, I believe this. There is nothing on this earth that rivals God for the throne of our heart like money does. And he knows it. And so he wasn't just going, oh yeah, money, it's pesky. But you got, he's going, look, this is probably the number one rival for your heart. And so he speaks to it. Be careful of your finances. Be careful of the weight placed on them. There is nothing that rivals the throne of our heart like the security or the status or the comfort that money promises. Paul, speaking to his son Timothy, and 1 Timothy 6 says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. He went, look, Timothy, Timothy was now kind of like running this church in Ephesus. And he was like, look, here's one thing you've got to be so careful of. Those whose hearts get grasped by the love of money, it leads them to all kinds of evil. It has pulled them away from the faith and into all kinds of pain and trouble. He doesn't, does it, you've probably heard it misquoted a lot. Money is the root of all evil, right? That's not what he says. The love of money. We all have to deal with money. None of us get out of it. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Beware of what it will do to your people, Timothy. It will lead them away and destroy them. Jesus says this during his earthly ministry in Matthew. He says, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus understood this principle. The things that we treasure, our heart gets attached to. And he goes, if the things that you treasure are here on this earth, are shiny and comfortable, and make you feel like I never have to worry again because there's enough in the account, he says, be so careful. Because it can all be taken away like that. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. 
There is no greater rival for the throne of our heart than the things that money promises to us. We have this horrible tendency to look forward to the gifts that God gives and ignore the God who gives the gifts. We have this horrible tendency. Oh no, oh no. I didn't write it down, it was off the cuff. You all hear that? That's why we record these things. So if we're going to have marriages that make a difference, we need to grow in the shared stewardship of our finances. And really, when we think about finances, there's three very basic categories that we could put it all into. Giving, saving, spending. It kind of covers everything. We're either going to give it away, we're going to save it up for one day in the future, or we're going to spend it now. That's really the only three categories. I guess lose it could be there. For some of us, that might be it, but hopefully not. But I want to look at these categories and spend some time focusing on God's view of these three things, giving, saving, and spending, because at no point in time in the scripture does he call any of them evil. But all of them we have to kind of weigh and figure out where he's leading us in them. So giving. We talked about that, where your treasures are there, your heart will be also. Nothing loosens money's grip on your heart like giving it away. I'm telling you. If you find yourself in one of those spots of going, I just can't stop thinking about how much is in the account, or I just can't stop thinking about that new shiny thing, or whatever it might be, a guaranteed way to break its grip on you is give it away. There's nothing that breaks money's grip on our heart like giving it away. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to how to give, a lot of people are going to give you a rule, and it's this. And I don't personally believe that there is a biblically specified amount or percentage. In, in the Old Testament, there was something called the tithe, which was 10%. Tithe literally just meant a tenth. And listen, when you actually read through the Old Testament, they actually gave closer to 20 to 30%. The tithe was their starting place. That was that every week thing. And then there was the, in this situation, do this. And in this, it came to be quite more than that. But this idea of the tithe has stuck with a lot of people. And listen, if that's where you are, I'm not going to knock you for it. If you want to give 10% away, fantastic. The average Christian is closer to 2%. So if you want to trend up, man, I would be thrilled with that. But listen, in the New Testament, we're called to something far more costly we're called to a life of generosity. Jesus talks about the tithe a couple times, typically in kind of reprimanding Pharisees, and then you don't see it again for the rest of the New Testament. What you see instead is a call to generosity, a call to recognition, none of this is mine. Lord, what do you want me to do with it? How, and listen, he almost always led people towards generosity towards others, towards the poor, towards the church and the work that God was doing. There was this generous mentality that came with following Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He goes, hey, I'm coming there soon. And there was this offering that they were going to take. And he says this, now about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. Paul, Paul's like, this is how I tell everybody to do it. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers so that no collection will, be, will need to be made when I come to you. Paul was going, look, giving should be planned. 
This isn't just some like, oh yeah, when somebody mentions it, when they talk about the offering, you go, what do I have? I think I got a 20 in here somewhere. Paul was going, this is something where every week you begin to save up. What, what is the Lord calling me to give? And we're going to put it aside. That is the Lord's that he's called us to, to give for whatever it may be. And so we're going to plan for it. Now, and some go, but wait, I love the spontaneous giving. I, I love when somebody has a need and I can just step up and go, hey, let me, can I buy that for you? Like, this doesn't in any way limit spontaneous giving. But there should be a plan involved. If all we're relying on is spontaneous giving, we're going to end up viewing way more of our money than, as ours than really is. Lord, every time it comes in, what do you want me to send back out? How, how generous are you calling us to be? Giving should be planned. In the next letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Giving is meant to be a response to what God has already given to us. But Paul doesn't go give because I said so. He goes give because you know your Father has already given you everything and will continue to give you everything you need. So whatever it is you decided in your heart, give it cheerfully. Not because you're worried about what did they give and what are they going to think of me. Like, Lord, I am so grateful for what you have done and I believe you will continue. And so I give this gift to you. Giving is not a law to be fulfilled, but a gift to be offered. And listen, I'm going to tell you this. What and where and how you give is a personal thing. It's between your family and the Lord. It's a matter of prayer and obedience. And if you hear a preacher up here talking about money and you're like, of course he is, give somewhere else. I don't want a single thing from you. I've said it before and I truly mean it. I've done this for free and I'll do it again. This is not about me trying to get your money from you. I partner with the Lord in hoping to, to release money's grip on you. So what, Lord, would you have us give? As each has decided in their own heart. Okay, Lord, the paycheck came in. How much of this do you want us to send back out again? It's all yours. I'm so grateful for what you've done. How can we partner with you? the cheerful giving that we've been called to. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says this, for some that look around the room and they go, but I don't have that much. Can I really make a difference? Does it really even matter? Paul says this, for if the eagerness is there, it's acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. God's not looking and going, well, how come you're not giving as much as they are? They make so much more and they give so much more. What's wrong with you? God goes, it's about your heart. I mean, think of the story of the, the widow's mite. Jesus takes his disciples uh, into the temple and they're watching the rich come. And I mean, they're literally dumping wagon loads of stuff into the temple treasury. What does the widow bring? Like a single penny and puts it in. And Jesus goes, whoa, 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 boys, did you see it? That is the most faithful giving I've ever seen. And they had to go, which Pharisee? The one with the really bright blue robe on? And he was like... The widow put in a single penny, and I've never seen such faith. 
It's not about an amount. God is not concerned. He doesn't need a single thing from you. He wants your heart. The eagerness is there. It's acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So listen, here's, here's a prayer that, that Kim and I pray, and I would encourage you to pray every time we sit down to do our budget. Whenever money comes in, we say, Lord, how much or what percentage do you want us to give? And, and listen, like we grew up with like the tithe was like our mentality. So that was our starting point. And it's more just checking in of going, Lord, is that what you're calling us to right now? And we just spend time praying together. And sometimes it's, yep. Sometimes it's, let's shift this way. Let's shift that way. Like, Lord, it's yours. What, how much do you want us to give? Not because you need it from me, not because you're trying to get it from me, but because I'm so grateful for what you've done. I look forward to partnering with you. Does that make sense, church? So, the first category, giving. The second, saving. Proverbs 21.20. Proverbs is so full of sayings about saving and whatnot. This is one of them. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but the fools gulp theirs down. There's this idea where, again, Solomon is talking to to his son, and he goes, look, the wise save something for later. The wise don't just, as soon as it comes in, it's already spent. As soon as it comes in, it's already eaten, and there's nothing left. The wise put some away for later. God is calling us to be wise people. There should be an element of saving to our finances. Now, again, uh, spoiler, I'm not going to tell you how much or how to save. Like, that's between you and the Lord. But are we coming to the Lord and going, Lord, what is wise for us to put away for later? If we're in that situation where there's any extra, are we supposed to be saving some? Are we supposed to be tightening our belt so that we can say, like, what is wise for us to do? But, but here's, here's the issue. There's a tension that we have to manage here because we have to be careful not to confuse the world's wisdom for the kingdom's wisdom. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians says this, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you can become wise. If you think you're wise... By the standards of this age, become a fool so you can become truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. How much if you just, you know, turn on MSNBC or whatever, I don't know, I don't really watch much financial television, but it's out there. How much are they going to tell you you need to save? 40%? Is that really what they're saying? That's crazy, right? Yeah. Well, let me, let me sum up then. More. How much do you need to save? More. More and more and more. Why? Well, because what if there's a war? What if there's a famine? What if shipping shortages continue? What if you lose your job? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? You always need to save more. Because from their perspective, who's looking out for you? Nobody. So you better be doing it yourself. From our perspective, who's looking out for you? The Lord. Lord. We have to be so careful of this fear-based saving that can so easily grip our hearts. Like I started to say before, typically in a a marriage, there's a spender and a saver. And that saver, you got to be careful. You can be so motivated by fear because there's so many what-ifs out there. 
And so the, the rational, wise thing to do is just keep saving more. We have to manage this tension between gluttony, eating it all now, spending it all now, and greed, hoarding it all for later. Both will destroy. There's a foolishness of not planning, a foolishness of just devouring everything as soon as it comes in. The scripture is very clear. That's, that's the fool's errand. But there's also a foolishness of storing up for a day that may never come. Jesus shares this parable and listen, for some of us, it hits us right in the heart. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life doesn't consist in a, of an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. There is so much that's come in. My barn's already full. What a great problem to have, right? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. I'm secure because there's enough. I can finally just relax. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Again, did he say having a barn is bad? The guy had a barn, and it was full, and he went, oh, what do I do with this excess? I'll save it so I can have even more security. You fool. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know how much time you have left. Why are you saving for a day that may never come? Typically, for many of the savers in the group, because it makes me feel better. Because to watch the numbers tick up on that savings account or that investment, my security goes up with it, which means I've placed my security in my finances. Where's our security supposed to come from? The Lord. We have to be so careful. Again, saving is not evil. Saving is wise. But there's this tension we have to manage. I don't want to be foolish and spend it all, nor do I want to hoard and find my security in anything other than the Lord. I keep saying one spouse is typically a spender and one's a saver. This is a great form of wisdom and accountability because as the saver tends to lean over here towards let's just keep putting more away, the spender's gonna come in and go, well, what if we enjoyed it? Or you know what, they need something. What if we gave some of it away? Spenders tend to be better givers. Not always the case, but tend to be. And you start to see the beautiful dynamic that can happen, again, as we set correct expectations, as we come together in this, of going, I wanna save more. Is that really what the Lord wants? Let's spend some time and seek him and find out. There's this beautiful push and pull that is meant to happen in a marriage relationship. So how much to save is a personal family decision between you and the Lord. It's a matter of prayer and obedience. I would recommend some prayers like this. Lord, what percentage should we save? What amount should we put away? And I would also counsel this again. This is me, not necessarily, like there's no verse that backs us up. This is just me. Lord, what amount should we aim for? There should be a cap on your savings. We, we, like, it is a sad thing. 
I think like in terms of churches, there's churches out there that have rainy day funds of like two, three, four million dollars. Just because, well, hey, that, if everybody stopped giving for six years, we'd be okay. There's kingdom work to be done. There are people in need now. There's, there are wars and famines today. What if those churches released those funds into the kingdom? What if those people who were just saving, 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 hoarding, 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 said, you know what? Realistically, this would get us through for a while. I will not save more than this. If more than this comes in, we get to have the, let me tell you, it is a super fun conversation. How are we going to give it away? It is a fun conversation. The Lord has blessed us so richly. How are we going to give it away? Man, secret giving, if you've never done it, it's the best thrill ride I've ever been on. Sneak up to somebody's house and leave some money and then try to get away without being caught. It's the best game of tag you'll ever play. Ah, that's not in the notes either. I won't spend time there. Giving, saving, and finally spending. Spending can get a bad rap. Spending can often be seen as like, oh, those people are just immature. But listen, when I talk about spending, this includes everything from a place to live to your utilities and groceries to new shoes and shiny things. It kind of covers all of it. And again, there's a tension to be managed here. An out-of-control spender can get the family in some pretty serious trouble, right? That's not a newsflash. We get that one. But let me tell you, a spender tends to be way better at enjoying the good gifts that the Father gives. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. Like, he delights to give his children good gifts, and sometimes we're afraid to enjoy them because it's like, oh no, am I being selfish? Oh no, am I being immature? And I think sometimes the father's just going, I gave it to you for a reason. Like, have fun. Go on the vacation. Enjoy the nice thing. Now, is that always the case? No. That's where this tension has to be managed. But listen, here's a, if, you are, if you're a spender, read through Proverbs. There's plenty there to kind of keep you in check. If you're the natural saver, do a study in the Old Testament on the feasts and celebrations. You will be amazed at how much money God commanded people to spend on throwing a party. Like, honestly, it's shocking. And he's like, and spend, and buy the fine wine and, and bring everyone together. And if anybody doesn't have anything, invite them to your house and just make more. And there's like this, whoa, Lord, at some point, isn't this irresponsible? And he was like, I have called my people to enjoy, to celebrate, but it's kind of got a bad rap and we have to be careful of that. Spending isn't bad. Overspending is what gets us into trouble. Just like saving isn't bad, but hoarding is a problem. Spending to the point where we can no longer be generous, obviously we've crossed the line. Spending to a point where there's nothing left over for tomorrow, the scriptures tell us clearly that is unwise. For those of us that are spenders, a passage that I am the spender again in our relationship a passage that always hits me in the heart. Philippians chapter three, Paul talking about these kinds of people and he says their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They're focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the whole thing of their God is their stomach. For a long time, I was like, 
okay, it's probably some pagan thing. Like, I don't know, maybe they're like fashioning little idols of their bellies and putting them up on the mantle to pray to. That's not what he's talking about. What he's really talking about, he's going, these people, every appetite they have has to be fed. Because they want something, they go, I have to get it, whatever the cost. And can I wait a week or so to get it? I have to get it right now. Amazon has made it so easy. And sometimes they say two-day shipping, and it shows up the next day. And it's like a miracle. Praise the Lord. But if it takes three days, we're in a fight. But there's a lack of ability to tell their appetites no. Just because I want it doesn't mean I need it. There, there, there's a, a lack of ability to put off instant gratification. And listen, instant gratification has been made so instant. Paul would have probably written this differently if he knew Amazon would exist one day and been like, I'm sorry, the what day? The next day? Like, but their end is destruction. Those that just chase down feeding every appetite that comes, saying yes to every want that comes in, and listen, we know this, their end is destruction. They're focused on earthly things. They've lost the plot. Their hearts are attached to earthly treasures, and their end is destruction. So for those of us that are spenders, tread lightly. It has been made so easy for us to feed every appetite instantly, but it will lead to our destruction. I, I think of the story of Jesus when he's out uh, fasting for 40 days, and the enemy comes and tempts him, and there, there's the understatement of the millennium. He's been out fasting 40 days, and it said, and he was hungry. Duh. Like, and so what's the first thing the enemy comes and tempts him with? Hey, you have this appetite. You look pretty hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? Why don't you feed yourself? Why don't you meet your own need? You have an appetite. You have the ability to meet it. Why not? And Jesus says, man does not live on bread, or on, yeah, on bread alone, but by the very words of God. My father will meet my needs in his time, and I trust him. And if I have to wait another day, I'll wait another day. The, the, it really wasn't about it was a sin to make rocks turn into bread. That's what we call a miracle, actually. The temptation was meet your own needs. Feed your own appetites. And Jesus said, no, I have a good father and I'll wait on him. Out of control spending, we know, leads to debt. And you guys know this passage, I'm sure. Proverbs 22, teach a youth about the way he should go. Man, we should, we should be teaching our children this. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to a lender. When we go and we put ourselves in debt, it's literally a form of bondage. Listen, some of you might be in this situation where you hear me talk about giving and generosity and something in your heart goes, yes, I want to do that, but I have so much debt I'm not able to. I'm enslaved to them to where I can't responsibly be obedient to the Lord. It's a paradox. It's a weird one for us. But God will never call you just, you know, tell your debtors, you know, I'm not sure what to say in a crowd of people, but tell, tell them to go away. We'll say that. I'm not paying you. You won't find that in scripture. We're called to be responsible men and women of God. It's a part of our witness. 
But then what do we do with this generosity? We hear it and we go, I want that, but I'm a slave. Until these debts are paid off, I'm a slave to the lender. It's a terrible, terrible place to be. For those of you that are there, continue to work at paying off that debt. Like We can help you. There are some, and we're not going to give you money, just so you know, that's not what I mean. But there are some tools that we can put in your hands, so, some, some training to help learn how do I get out of debt quicker, how do I do it in a wise way, so that I can be the generous and wise person or family that God is calling us to be. But it's a tough spot to be in. You understand the yoke of slavery that comes with debt. What if we began to teach and model this for our children and for our neighbors? What it is to live free and to live generous. You think they wouldn't be drawn to that? Of course they would. So let me give you a couple, again, just practical tools. If you are the spender, here's a prayer that I'm trying to teach myself to pray regularly. Lord, is this a wise use of your money? Most spenders need to be reminded this is a stewardship. It's not yours, it's his. Lord, is this a wise use of your money? If you're a spender, that's a very scary prayer to pray. Why? Because he might say no. And listen, most of us, if we're spenders, we're convinced he would say no. That's why we haven't been asking him this far. I think you will be shocked at what he says yes to. At what he gives his blessing to and goes, enjoy it. Celebrate with it. In fact, spend more and invite your neighbors over. I think you'll be amazed at it. But there will be times when he tells you, no, this is not for you or this is not for now. Do we really believe it's his money? So Lord, is this a wise way to spend your money? And listen, this this is very practical too. I didn't know the Tonys were going to be here, but stealing this from them, the three-day rule. I want to buy something. And what, you guys have a dollar limit, like 20 bucks, is that... Okay, so they, they have a range, like 20 to $50, something like that. And they go, I want to buy this thing, but it's more than like our kind of like, yeah, you can just pick it up and go. It's more than 20 bucks. Wait three days. At the end of that three days, do I still want to buy it? Like, I'm assuming you have the money for it, and it's a matter of like, I got 100 bucks in my pocket. Is it, do I want to spend it on this? Wait three days. You will be amazed, honestly, how often you'll just forget you even wanted it three days later, you'll be amazed how in three days you kind of go, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I really don't need that. Or you get to the end of three days and you go, I still want to get it. Cool. I've done it the wise way. I have the money. I'm going to go get it. Like, but getting that perspective, just that little bit of time between I need it and I have it. Have you ever ordered something off Amazon and then been surprised when it showed up in two days because you forgot you ordered it? If you haven't, you're a liar. We've all done it. Because in the moment, like, oh, they make it so easy. Oh, that'll be so cool. And then the package comes, you know, and Kim would be like, hey, did you order something? I'm like, I don't think so. I go home, I'm like, oh, yeah. And then I have that, what am I going to do with this? Like, this really helps with that impulse spending. And again, forces you to just calm down and go, just because I have the want doesn't mean I have to say yes. These are are just some tools that I'm trying to throw out there. I wanted to, to, we do not have time. I wanted to spend some time and go through kind of like, if you don't have a spending plan, a, a budget for lack of a better word. And listen, if you're a spender, I said budget and something in you like shivered and cringed, I get it. But I can't tell you the freedom that comes 
from having a spending plan, from having a budget. If, if you're here today and you don't have some kind of plan, every month when money comes in or every two weeks or whatever it is, when it comes in, here's what we do with it. I would love to sit down and talk with you sometime. And listen, you don't have to show me your actual finances. We'll make up some numbers. Some people are like, oh gosh, I don't want people to see. I won't ask. We'll, we'll use some just fake numbers, but I wanna give you some tools to know how to spend what comes in, to know what is wise and what isn't wise. Far too often we get to the end of the month and we ask this question and we've all asked it, where did it all go? And listen, I can answer the question for you. Uh, unless you've had some kind of identity fraud or something like that, the answer is it went right where you sent it. But did you have a plan? Did you send it somewhere on purpose? That's the problem. So if you find yourself in that space and you're going, I hear you talking and I want to do that, but I have no idea how to get from where we are to there. I would love to sit down with you. There's some, our elders are way better with money than I am. You've just heard me tell on myself and a lot of stuff and you're like, we're supposed to talk to him? <laughs> There's some much wiser people out there that I will plug you in with. But this is such an important thing. Again, more was written on this than heaven and hell combined. We have to be so careful. Shirley mentioned before a something that Kim and I have stolen from a guy named Andy Stanley, a pastor down in the Atlanta area. And he wanted to make it so clear. He says, listen, God is not trying to get your money. He doesn't need it. He doesn't want it. He's trying to keep your money from getting you. That's really what's at stake here. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If we're going to have the kind of marriages that make a difference, we need to grow in shared stewardship of our finances. All the things that money offers us, security, comfort, status, we're to get all of that from our king. The reason that we can be generous, the reason that we can tell ourselves no is because we have faith that our king will meet our every need. Amen? I'm going to invite the music team up. I'm going to pray over us. Lord Jesus, these are more than just words or, or ideas, I truly believe it's what you're calling us into. Lord, I know the fights that happen behind closed doors because we just see money differently, because we want this or we want to do that, and like, I understand. God, may you bring us as families to a place of unity. Not, again, not that we never fight about it again, but that we're moving toward a place of shared stewardship. These are the king's finances. What is he calling us to give or, or to save or to spend and to enjoy? Lord, may we hear clearly from you as we come and we lay our finances at your feet. Lord, wherever there is fear or there is hesitation, may we be reminded that our hope is not in our money, our hope is in you. We can give because we trust that you are still on our side and continuing to meet our needs. And so may we give cheerfully and freely. Lord, we can draw that line and manage that tension of, of spending and saving because we know that our good Father gives good gifts. And when our faith is in Him, we have nothing to worry about. So Lord, really, this is a faith issue. May our faith be built up and may our finance, God, may, may that grip it has on our heart be broken, I pray, because we trust our good Father who gives every good gift. In Jesus' name, amen.